Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Hey everybody, it's Corey. I wanted to mention that Kellen and I have received a decent amount of feedback regarding the episode you're about to listen to, and I wanted to clarify a couple of things. The first is that our intention with this episode was to discuss the merits of Bill Gates' book itself and not dive too deep into whether or not Bill Gates is a bad person. Bill has done a mixture of both great things and bad things over the decades, from extramarital affairs with his employees to saving potentially millions from dying of malaria to denying poor people access to COVID-19 vaccines for intellectual property protection. There's no doubt that Bill Gates loves money and has made decisions that have hurt other people in order to protect that money. At one point in the episode, an incorrect statement was made understating Bill's upbringing and the wealth he grew up in, so we've gone ahead and edited that sentence completely out of the episode to make it factually correct. In the end, I think the issue can be best summed up by Robert Evans, who did a two-part series about Bill Gates on his podcast Behind the Bastards. He said, The answer is the actual bastard here is the system that lets individuals accumulate billions of dollars by commodifying every single thing. With all that being said, we hope you enjoy the episode for its intended purpose, which is to discuss Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Welcome back to Breaking Down Collapse. This is episode number 26. Kellen, it's been a while, I feel like, since I've really just checked in with you to see how uh, how you're feeling about the podcast, how you're feeling about what you're learning. Where's your head at? You know, I really appreciate the conversations that we've had recently, especially because I've been able to start hearing from these other sources, right? Not just from you, but now 
I've been a part of a conversation with John Michael Greer and with Desha Mila, and I'm really grateful that you taught me kind of the fundamentals, the basics to start because now I have this foundation of what collapse is and I can really build on it from there. So in the last several weeks, it seems like we've been getting deeper into these subtopics and specific issues and details that I'm not just seeing this from a theoretical standpoint. I'm not just understanding the basic principles, but I'm starting to get a real sense for what is happening in the world around me. And not just you telling me, hey, here's the path that we're on. But now I can see why that's actually the case. Yeah, well said. And that's the natural progression sort of of the podcast, right? Like we started out with the principles of collapse. We're moving more into the details. We're digging deeper. We're seeing how it's relevant to our everyday lives. And I think that's going to continue to intensify as we go along. And we'll get into some episodes along the way that are going to be more relevant to what is happening currently, right? More current situation and events. I know early on in the podcast, we'd be doing an episode and there'd be like something going on that was relevant to collapse, but it was outside the scope of the principle that we were talking about. And so to stay on focus, we didn't talk about it. But as we go forward, you know, as things are happening, I think we'll start to focus on those things and relate them back to the principles that we've already discussed. And so I'm really excited for that. And for me at this point, it's beyond just, hey, this is something that's interesting, something that's fun to learn about. I feel this sense of urgency, like I want to consume as much information about collapse as I can. And maybe that just comes from the fact that the reality is setting in, right? That this is the situation that we're currently living in and the situation that we are going to be living in. And so I don't know if other people feel this same way as they get introduced to collapse the same way that I have been. But as all of this becomes more and more real, I have an appetite to dig deeper and deeper on these topics. And I think what you just described is a turning point that we all go through sort of in our acceptance of collapse, realizing that it's not this hypothetical fairy tale story that we're telling. This isn't a fiction novel. All these principles, all these things that we've talked about are both happening and will intensify in our lives as we continue to go forward. It is real. And so it is important to talk about and discuss and notice it as it happens. So that is not to say that we're only going to be focusing on current events because we're still going to be doing a lot of deep dives into topics and things that we've touched on briefly, but there's way more to learn about. And so this is where those principles meet reality. It's where we're going to take the things that we've learned and we're going to view the real applications of them in everyday life. And so that being said, the topic of today's episode comes from something that I've been seeing floating around Reddit a bit and even uh, the Collapse subreddit. And that is a conversation around a book that just came out by Bill Gates around how to avoid a climate disaster. One of the questions that was being asked was, is the book even worth reading or is it just a bunch of like green techno-hopium? And there was some good conversation around that and I was intrigued. And so I thought maybe a good topic for today was, was if Kellen and I read the book and sort of gave our review, just because I know a lot of people's time is precious People don't want to waste their time reading a book if it's not going to give them the value and what they're looking for. And so this last week, Kellen and I read it, and we're just going to talk a little bit about it and give our opinion on basically whether or not it's worth reading. Yeah, and this isn't the first time that we've taken some content that's out there, you know, a documentary or something like that, and pulled it into these conversations to discuss how it aligns with what we're seeing in regards to collapse. 
But to me, this one is particularly interesting because, you know, if resource depletion and the political divide and the wealth disparity and the looming economic troubles and all these other things that we've discussed, if they don't cause collapse, like we've said before, climate change will. And so I think this book is timely. And I think a conversation about it is necessary because there are some really strong opinions out there about Bill Gates as an individual. And a lot is being said, both positive and negative, about what he wrote in this book. Yeah, you know, some 70% of Americans say that climate change is a serious issue that needs to be addressed. And us being in a relatively small community of collapse-aware people, we have to recognize that climate change is a big part of this. Because like you said, even if all of the other stuff that we believe will happen through catabolic collapse and resource depletion and all these things, the scientific community overwhelmingly and the population as a whole overwhelmingly believes that climate change is going to cause serious issues, if not collapse in the future, if we don't take care of it. And so climate change being such a huge issue and Bill Gates being one of the most wealthy and one of the people who cares the most about this topic among the wealthy, this seems like a very relevant piece of literature to care about. And there's a couple of questions that I think we need to ask ourselves about Bill Gates and his intention for writing this book. And so I think we'll answer those. But first, like you said, Kellen, there's all this controversy and all these different opinions around Bill Gates. And so I think we should take a second to maybe set our stance and clarify the assumptions that we're going to make about Bill Gates going into this. And so to me, I know I personally am going to be coming from the stance that the conspiracy theories around Bill Gates are unfounded. I don't believe that he has pushed a vaccine that's intended to implant us with chips. I don't believe that he has links to 5G networks that are going to like melt our brains or cause us to buy more Microsoft products. We'll talk about the many flaws of Bill Gates, but I do want to point out right now that we're taking this viewpoint from a stance of not believing that he is out to try and destroy the world or take it over. Yeah, it's interesting because he is the target of a lot of conspiracy theories. And I think people just generally hate the rich, like especially the ultra wealthy there's nothing that you can do that will make everybody like you. You know, I don't know much about Bill Gates as a person and what his character is, but it's just so funny to me because if you could ask anything of a billionaire, wouldn't it be to try to dedicate your life to making the world a better place? And who knows, maybe he has intentions I'm not aware of, but to me it looks like he is saying, I want to help a lot of people around the world not die of diseases. Right? And he's going into a lot of third world countries and trying to make sure they get the vaccinations they need. He's trying to make sure they have clean water and trying to take people out of poverty and trying to fight climate change. And he's trying to do all these things that he can have a much bigger impact on than I can. And so you would think that the public would say, like, thank you. Like, we love Bill Gates. And yet, for some reason, there's just not very many people that do. It seems like a lot of people have a lot of angst against him. And I mean, I get it, right? There is, I have a lot of mistrust towards ultra wealthy. I think in a lot of cases, the way they make their money is by taking advantage of people, by overworking, by underpaying. It's a complete sort of atrocity of inequality that it stems from. But I think about myself and I'm like, okay, if I had the chance to make a million dollars, like what good could I do with that? 
you know, and I, I think about, okay, I could maybe start like a tiny nonprofit or I could like donate that money to a nonprofit that could do good things. But then I'm like, well, what if I could invest that million dollars smartly and turn it into a hundred million? What if I could turn it into a billion? Or what if like Bill Gates, I could turn it into 133 billion? Would I do that if I knew that I would take that money and use it to do good? Now, obviously, Bill Gates does not use all of his money to do good. And we could argue that the way that Bill Gates earned his money, where his labor was performed, and if he had Chinese sweatshops and all these things, right, that that can be viewed as immoral. Of all the billionaires out there, he does seem to be the one that gives a crap. And so people listening to this might and probably will disagree with me having some respect in that regard for it. He's not using all of that money for his own personal purposes he is going out of his way to try and do good. And I, there's not many billionaires that we can say that about. Yeah, and when it comes to this book in particular, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, you know, I've now gone through it. You've completed the book as well. And my approach was to listen through the entire book. I listened to it as an audiobook and formulate my own opinions about what was said there and then go see what other people were saying about it. But one of the critiques that I saw is that people instantly discredit the content of the book because of who wrote it, which is a logical fallacy, right? People are saying he's not a climate scientist, so what does he know? Nothing in here is valid. Or they're saying he's ultra wealthy and he and all of his companies and investments have contributed to the climate problems that we have. And so I'm not going to listen to anything that he says instead of just looking at the merits of the arguments that he's making. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I can see, again, where people might come from in that idea because you're like, okay, this is a guy who flies in private jets. His carbon footprint has got to be massive, right? Why should I be listening to him tell me how we're going to save the climate? And I think that's valid in a lot of ways. I don't think, like you said, that it takes away from the content of the book. The things that he says in the book, in large part, I think he does a really great job of explaining them. And we'll get into the details of, of that in a minute. But in the book, you know, he, he talks about that. He says, I know that my carbon footprint is massive. I do fly private planes. He says, I flew a private plane to the climate conferences. And so part of me is like, okay, well, he admits that. He knows that he's doing that. You know, he says that he is offsetting his carbon footprint by investing in technologies that improve our situation. He has directly invested in carbon capture and things like that, that he says actually makes a net negative on his carbon footprint. And while I think that's noble, I also just think, why don't you just fly commercial? Like you, by flying private, you are still saying that your comfort and the speed and convenience at which you can get from A to B is more important than the climate. And so that to me is, is a critique that I have. Um, I like that he admitted it. I like that he's doing work to try and offset his carbon footprint, but he could be doing so much more by just trying to lower his footprint in the first place. Yeah. And I don't know that we can be too critical. Once you become that high profile, can you really fly commercial? Like just the amount of security you would have to have. We don't need to dive into the specifics of that, but it's a good point that you bring up. When it comes to just overall thoughts and impressions of the book, I first want to say that it was really refreshing that he doesn't villainize anybody. Like everything that I've seen around climate change seems to be pointing the finger at government, right? And taking a really strong political stance. 
or pointing the finger at corporations and saying that they're completely evil and they're causing the problem or pointing the finger at consumers and saying that, you know, the way that we're living our lifestyle, we are awful and basically not worthy of a functioning planet. But he actually does a really good job of validating all the different arguments. And he says, as he's talking about all the problems, you know, there are very practical and economic reasons for why this continues to happen. And, you know, validating, it makes sense that corporations have made these choices. And it makes sense that as consumers, we're not making big changes to our lifestyle. It makes sense that with the political system, some of these issues haven't been solved. So I like that he's not attacking anybody while also calling out that there is a big responsibility on politicians and on corporations and on consumers. And I think he strikes a good balance of calling out the changes that need to be made while not being overbearing. Yeah, I agree. I feel like he took a very logical approach to the problem instead of an emotional approach, a dramatic approach. A lot of climate change books come from a very like, they're almost romanticizing climate change, right? He comes at it and says, we have a huge issue, which is going to be monumental to overcome. And to me, this is something that I really liked about the book. Um, And I will get to lots of things I didn't like about the book later. But one thing I loved about the book is that he said, I mean, he's just so open and blunt about saying this problem is freaking intense. He didn't sugarcoat. He basically just said, this is an uphill battle that we might not win. The obstacles are so intense and they are such that if we don't make these drastic changes that need to be made, we will face the consequences of them and those consequences will be dire. I feel like a lot of high-profile people like Bill Gates who talk about the subject, they feel this responsibility to like not panic people and you know give off this sense of everything's going to be all right. And I did not get that impression from the book. You know what? And I felt like it was maybe a little bit contradictory in its tone. The tone actually seemed really positive. And he seemed to suggest that there were a lot of opportunities for technologies to come in and really fix the problem. And then on the other hand, he gives all the evidence for why that's so far-fetched. And so one of the reviews that I looked at about the book, somebody compared it to like when you can see somebody smiling, but they're not smiling with their eyes. And I definitely felt that way, that he had this positive, hopeful tone. And yet a lot of the ideas he was throwing out there made it sound like there's no way we're going to fix this. So when it comes to his intentions and his intent for writing the book, I've seen some people call into question, like, does he actually want to fix the problem? Is he just doing this to make more money? If he really wanted people to read the book and he felt like this was super important, then why is he charging for it? Why wouldn't he just give it away for free? He has the money to do that. And I don't have an answer to that. I don't know. I don't know why he wouldn't just give it away. I know in it's sort of a business psychology thing that by charging for something, you're showing that it has value. If he just gave it away for free, it, it's kind of like the guy in the street that gives away pamphlets that nobody wants to pick up. And so to, it, that part of it makes sense to me. But overall, I feel like his intentions with this are good. This is an issue he really does care about. You know, his foundation has been all about giving impoverished people access to basic human rights with things like clean water, food, health. He's strived to end poverty through increasing access to energy and education. When it comes to collapse, this is obviously a bit of a paradox because 
by bringing better situations to these people, by by bringing people out of poverty, nations are developing. And when nations develop, they use more greenhouse gases and they consume more and there's more waste and pollution. And so like we've said, the the whole book and Bill Gates, his focus is on climate change. It's not on collapse. But I think that that is a negative or a critique of Bill Gates's approach is that he is singularly focused on climate change without realizing that his his focus on climate change and helping people does make the collapse situation worse and more likely. And just to make it clear, I'm not advocating that we shouldn't help people. I think it's great what he's doing, alleviating a lot of suffering. But when you look at it from a high level of collapse and overpopulation and overconsumption and energy consumption, more people consuming more is a negative. But he does call that out. He does state that there is that paradox of needing to help these underdeveloped nations while also recognizing that's going to contribute more to the problem. So his whole approach is, what, by 2050, getting to zero emissions, right? Getting to a point where we have completely clean energy. Yeah, he mentioned that he realized early on if he's going to continue to bring people out of poverty and give them more access to energy infrastructure, that it needs to be through clean energy infrastructure. And that's why he's invested in in all these clean energy businesses. But again, while I think it is extremely important to end suffering, there is no way to do it without causing more consumption, more waste, right? Even if the energy is all clean, if our population globally continues to grow, it is still unsustainable. There are still limits to growth. You know, from my standpoint, it's we need to raise people out of poverty give them access to clean energy, but we in the West need to meet them halfway. We don't want to bring everybody to the West's level of consumption. We want to bring them up so that they are no longer impoverished and bring us down so we're no longer living in vanity. There's an equilibrium that I think we need to reach that puts us in a better place for sustainability. And maybe Bill Gates believes that, but he doesn't talk about it really. That's not that's not his aim. And so By trying to bring impoverished nations out of poverty but not change our situation or advocate for us consuming less, we're just setting ourselves on a worse trajectory. So getting into the book and some of the specifics of the things that he talked about, he had sort of three main things that needed to happen in order for us to be able to avoid a climate disaster. And these are what they were. He said, number one, we have to get to zero emissions. He basically said there was no other option but zero. Cutting it in half decreasing it by whatever percent, unless it was 100%, was not enough. And if I remember right, he kept referencing the year 2050, right? That that's what we should be aiming for is to get to zero by 2050. Yeah, and that's kind of what a lot of the scientific community talks about. You know, if we can do it by 2050, then that might be enough time. I'm personally a little more negative, I think, in that regard. I think by 2050, we're already hitting feedback loops that are irreversible, But obviously, he's not saying we're going to keep going like we're going, and then on December 31st, 2049, we're going to drop down to zero. It's a downhill along the way, and so if we're going at a good enough rate, then we should be fixing things along the way and hopefully stopping those tipping points from happening. The second thing he said we need to do is we need to deploy tools we already have faster and smarter. So he talked about specific technologies solar, wind, you know, all the renewables, things like that, that we've discussed and will discuss in the future, being smarter and faster with those. And then the third thing he said was we need breakthrough technologies that we don't have yet that can take us the rest of the way. And that last one, it's hard to know whether that's just what you referenced in the past as hopium, right? Saying we need technologies that we don't have now. 
And so how realistic is it to expect that we can develop and deploy technologies that will make a major contribution to fixing this problem in the time frame that he's outlined? I like that he's encouraging the innovation, but it's easy for any of us to step in and just say, hey, we need somebody to come up with a solution for this. We need somebody to invent a miraculous technology that's going to solve the problem, right? So that one, although I think he's right, it's difficult for me to feel like that's really anything we can anchor hope to. Yeah, I feel like in some areas, he was very blunt about that as well, saying like, we cannot rely on this technology being created. We can't just expect that it's going to happen. You know, he's putting money into companies trying to make it happen, which is more than, you know, we can say. We're just sitting here hoping, saying, I hope somebody figures it out, you know. But there was some parts that really bothered me because he he would go through this whole thing being so blunt and honest and sort of realistic about the situation. But then he had like one little blurb about geoengineering and it was so like... There wasn't much detail. There wasn't a whole lot about it. He was just completely hopium-filled on this idea that geoengineering will be successful. And that just kind of blew me away. I mean, he basically said, like, people argue against geoengineering, but they're wrong and it's going to work. And by the way, we haven't really talked about geoengineering. We'll do an entire episode on it. But basically what that is, it's artificially lowering the Earth's temperature by reflecting sunlight back out into space through the most popular sort of idea right now is that they're going to pump a bunch of particles into the atmosphere that are highly reflective. They want to disperse certain types of clouds that trap heat. They want to create other types of clouds that are reflective. But it is a giant experiment and a giant gamble that is unproven and could potentially be dangerous. Geoengineering should be the very last resort. And even then, you're risking making the situation worse. And the fact that he was just so optimistic about it did bother me a bit. Yeah, and for me, when it comes to all the different technologies that he talked about throughout the book, geoengineering was the most fascinating. He didn't say much about it. And I think he was perhaps a little too optimistic about it. But it's a new concept for me. I wasn't familiar with the ideas that have been developed up to this point of, like you said, being able to pump certain particles into the atmosphere that help us lower the temperature of the earth. So I personally don't know how I feel about geoengineering, but as a concept, it's really fascinating to me, and I'm excited to learn more about it in the future. When it comes to the other technologies that he talked about, a lot of it was around you know, solar and wind and other renewable sources of energy, and he critiqued them very strongly. Like All along the way, he said, yes, we need to make advances in wind. And we need to make advances in solar. But he also threw out a bunch of numbers and facts and figures around, like, we would have to have so much more space and it would cost so much to create the infrastructure for that. He kind of said, none of those things are going to save us. It felt like it had the same air as our episode that we did on renewable electricity and just how, yeah, there's all these things and maybe it could work. But it is so far away from it, and we have so little time to figure it out. Yeah, and I was a little bit surprised that the one he seemed most optimistic about was nuclear. And he talked a little bit about nuclear fusion and nuclear fission and the differences there and how far we've come and where we still need to go. But he made a really compelling argument that there is a ton of untapped potential energy there. And if there's anything that's going to allow us to create the kind of energy we will need in the future without emitting all these greenhouse gases, that's probably one that'll do it. 
Yeah, and I think he was he was realistic at the same time of saying it does have challenges. You know, the problems that we know about nuclear, what do you do with the waste, some of the potential dangers from meltdowns or contamination. But he also expressed how difficult nuclear fusion is and how far away from it we probably are. It's one of the technology, you know, if we could figure out nuclear fusion, it would solve so many energy problems. But it is one of those that we have been trying to solve for many decades in the past, and which we'll likely be trying to solve many decades into the future. And this is another one, by the way, nuclear energy that we will do an entire episode on. But like you said, it was interesting to hear that that was the one that he was kind of pushing the hardest. So getting into a few things from the book that I didn't like beyond his comments on geoengineering, there's a point in there that he praises the Haber-Bosch process as one of the greatest innovations of all time. And so for those unfamiliar, the Haber-Bosch process is basically what allows us to be able to feed the planet, the population that we have today. It's basically creating synthetic fertilizer with ammonium nitrate, which again, we will do an episode on. But, and this is a bit of a touchy subject, because a lot of people even in the collapse community will say that overpopulation is not an issue. It's, it's not a population problem. And I'm certainly not advocating for people not having enough to eat But what bothered me was that Bill Gates specifically said, and he said it like it was this amazing thing, that that process is responsible for the huge boom in population that we've experienced over the last century. So I guess what bothers me is that he doesn't recognize that that is a problem. You know, would he champion another innovation that happens now that quadruples our population over the next 20 or 30 years? Like, would that be viewed as a good thing, even if that meant completely collapsing our societies? I am in no way an eco-fascist. I do not advocate that anything should be done to decrease the population. But what I'm saying is to have that disconnect of being so congratulatory on this innovation that really is resulting in the very problem that he's having to write this book about seemed a little bit odd. And I don't know why it really needed to be included in the book because he then goes on to say that ammonium nitrate fertilizer is a huge emitter of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. It's one of the biggest problems that we have to solve to get to net zero carbon emissions, because in order to keep feeding people, we have to have it. Yeah, and I think what you're saying goes back to this whole paradox. For example, you want to lift people out of poverty and help nations where people have a lower quality of life rise to a higher quality of life. And yet, by doing so, you recognize that's going to contribute more to the problem. This feels like the same kind of thing. Hey, here's this great innovation that allows us to feed a lot more people. Like, yes, that is a good thing. But again, it comes with side effects. Feeding more people means the population can grow that much faster. And that's where we get all the waste and the greenhouse gas emissions and everything else. So to me, it's a good reminder that this is a very complex, messy issue. That with so many facets of this topic, there's two sides to the coin. And that's part of why it's so difficult to solve. It's part of why nothing has been done, at least on the scale that we need it to be done, to fix this issue. And it's why it's hard to believe that we will make a lot of progress in the future. Yeah, and I feel like by the end of the book, he had kind of reverted back to this sort of like, rah, rah, we can get there, we can do it. Which makes sense. He's a mainstream figure. The goal of his book is to tell us what the problem was, which is what he did very bluntly in the beginning. And his goal is to inspire people to want to make the changes, to tell us what those changes need to be for reaching the goal. 
and where I come from, this sort of opinion that I don't think we're going to be able to avoid the worst effects of climate change. It all feels like hopium whenever a book ends that way. But at the same time, a high-profile person like him writing a book and ending it saying, like, we're all screwed, there's absolutely nothing we can do, it's not going to happen, isn't very effective either. We have said, you know, in the episode that we did about renewable electricity, I stated, I think it's possible. I'm not saying it's impossible. I think we have a monumentally difficult road to get there. I personally don't think that we will get there, at least not in time, but it is possible. Bill Gates in his book just took a little bit different route, said the same thing, that we have a monumentally hard road to get there, but come on, guys, we're going to do it. We can do it. So maybe the most important question to ask is around what kind of an impact this book had on you. You know, if you read a book and you get to the end and you are the exact same person that you were before you started the book and all of your opinions are the same, nothing has changed, none of your thoughts have changed, then it's probably not a worthwhile book. So do you feel like this book changed you at all? I think I can say that this book made me appreciate or realize that some of the most high-profile people working on this also realize the immensity and the gravity of the situation and are willing to admit that. So, you know, we talk about hopium a lot. We talk about the scientists and the reports, and we talk about the way politicians talk about it. And a lot of times it feels like climate change is just constantly being brushed aside like it's nothing, it's no big deal, we're going to figure it out. And so it was refreshing to hear somebody say, and somebody who's spent hundreds of millions of dollars towards it, say, this is a reality and we have some monumental obstacles to fix it. And I think I'd ask the same question to you, Kellen. Do you feel like this changed you or your thoughts at all? I mean, for anybody in my situation that is new to a lot of these concepts, I think it is a worthwhile read. We had talked in previous episodes about a lot of the things that he brought up in the book. So like you, my opinions didn't change drastically. Nothing in there was just completely groundbreaking. You know, there weren't any revolutionary ideas that just changed my entire paradigm. But I feel more informed. I feel like I understand some of the limits. You know, I almost feel like one of the big focuses of his book was the economics of it all and how, you know, solution A really isn't that likely or probable because of how much it costs us. And we're never going to be able to implement a solution that's that costly. You know, in solution B, here's the critique on on the economics of it. So where before, I think I was just like, yeah, great. This renewable source of energy and this one and this one and this solution, like it's all equal in my mind. I come out of the book having a little more perspective on what's realistic. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that surprised me as well the most. I came out of it thinking I would recommend this book to someone who doesn't understand climate change, the impacts of climate change, and the hurdles that we have to face to fix it. Going into the book, I expected it to be a lot more sugar-coated. And instead, what I got was a prominent voice basically backing up the claims we've made about why renewables aren't good enough and about why our path is so difficult. So if you've read the book or if you're going to read the book, we welcome your feedback. We'd like to hear what you thought. Obviously, our opinions are ours. Everybody's entitled to their own. We'd like to hear your impressions, so feel free to reach out via Twitter at the handle at CollapsePod. You can reach out to me on Reddit. I'm user Corey John, K-O-R-Y-J-O-N, or you can send us an email at breakingdowncollapse at gmail.com. Like always, please leave us a review on the podcast if you haven't done so yet. And if you feel so inclined, feel free to join us on Patreon. You can find the link in the description below. 
I don't know if you felt this way, that he kind of did leave it like rah-rah, we can do it sort of thing, more so than at the beginning. I think that is what he did. I think he wanted to make it very clear, this is a problem. And then he wanted to say, like, we can get there. Which, if I were to write a book on it, I'd probably do the same thing. Because, like, what's the point of writing a book and just saying, like, we're screwed. We're screwed. We can't do it. What's the point of doing a podcast and doing that? (laughs) (laughs) Touche. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course. And I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.